0: Welcome to the LTUE podcast, a place to listen to panels you may have missed, or relive a few highlights. To learn more about next year's symposium or to purchase tickets, visit LTUE.net. And without further ado, on to a session that was recorded at our 2020 Symposium. Blacksmiths, get a bigger hammer. Or not. Uh, a lot of books I've seen and, and, and movies and stuff, the, uh, blacksmith is wielding one-handed a ten-pound hammer. All day. It doesn't happen. Can it be done? Yes, I've done it. After twenty minutes, I was done for the day. <laughs> the, the point of the hammer is you have your, All blacksmiths have a main hammer. That main hammer is the hammer that they can swing all day long. Mine happens to be three pounds. Most blacksmiths I know think I'm insane. More often than not, you're going to see a a one-and-a-half to two-pound hammer. So, now let's get on to the most common question I'm asked Hey, can you shoe my horse? And this is always asked by somebody who does not own horses or never had one. Reason why? Blacksmiths don't shoe horses. Ever. Now, that's done by a farrier. The farrier is the precursor to a veterinarian. They take care of the horse. So a blacksmith will make the shoe. Farriers put them on. There are uh, farriers that do double duty as part-time blacksmiths. Their primary job is farrier. So you will have that, but if you're riding a blacksmith and you're having him shoe horses, he's not a blacksmith. He's primarily a farrier. So, see this? Lots of sparks, right? You see this in Hollywood all the time. And that's what it is, Hollywood. This will happen sometimes. The amount of sparks that you get off is very few. It's uh, This is very showy. Um, this will happen sometimes, and it's generally when you're forge welding. And uh, forge welding, you're basically sticking two pieces of metal together and making a permanent bond. Uh, If done right, a forge weld is better than a modern weld, because a modern weld doesn't get to the center. A forge weld takes the two pieces and makes them one. So if you do a forge weld wrong, you get your metal too hot, you can do this. You can also do this by getting the metal up to forge welding temperature, putting water on the anvil and the hammer, and smacking it. This is called a steam explosion. And it's exactly that. It's an explosion. If you do it, you will feel it in your chest. It's uh and you better better have air protection because it is loud too. Um, and by the way, if you do that, the metal you're working on is now going into the scrap pile. It's useful for nothing. Maybe a doorstop. Um, so then we got tools here. See this? That's a small shop's worth of tools. Um, these. A lot of people think this is a rack full of hammers. Eighty percent of those things aren't hammers. Yes, they have a handle. But uh so this right here this is a a hot cut. A hot cut. So you put it over your metal and then you hit it with another hammer. And that uh that uh chisel like end here, that cuts into the metal. And you can do that as a fuller just going halfway through or you can actually go all the way through and hit it. The ones with the long, round things, those are punches. Again, they're used to be... the back end is not for hitting. That's where you strike. The back end on these things is not hard. You never want to hit two hardened surfaces together. Because you do that, the hardened surfaces will eventually crack and will shoot off bits of metal at bullet speeds. People have died from this. So the tool, when you're talking about a top tool, the the end that gets struck is always left soft. And here are a lot of tongs. The blacksmith will have more tongs than any other tool. And the reason why is because you make the tongs to fit what you're working on. If you do not have the proper tongs for to hold the stock you need, you make the tongs and then you make what you're doing. So, make the tools to make the tools type thing. Um, Now, I'm going to talk about wrought iron. Who knows what wrought iron is? Who thinks they know what wrought iron is? <laughs> okay, right here, two of these things in this picture are not wrought iron. Everybody got an idea of what you think isn't wrought iron? Were you right? So wrought iron is not decorative ironwork. This is decorative ironwork. Uh, wrought iron is the type of metal. To get wrought iron, you start out with a bloom. And you to make a bloom, you take uh, charcoal, put it on a base, and this is in a, a, a type of a furnace uh, or... And you start that on fire. Then you add a layer of ore. Then you add another layer of charcoal. And then a layer of ore. And the layer of ore is you're just putting dust down. You got like that much charcoal and that much iron ore. And you keep doing this. You keep layering it over and over and over again. And you burn it. And you keep burning it. This is an all day process making. And at the end what happens is all the imp- or most of the impurities will slag out. They will melt. It'll be glass. You can you you have a tap where you can let all that stuff run out. The iron doesn't melt. It doesn't get hot enough to melt. And so what will happen is but the iron gets warm. It's like um warm taffy. You take two pieces of warm taffy. You put one on top of the other. You don't need to mush it or anything. They stick. That's what happens. Once you're all done, you pull out this bloom. And it still has impurities in it. Now, these impurities are like bits of glass, bits of unburned charcoal, um, dirt, and things like that. And so then what you do is you hammer it down, make it flat, fold it over. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Hammer it out, fold it over, hammer it out, fold it over, and at the end, you get wrought iron. Wrought basically means worked. So it means that this has been worked, um, and then you can make whatever you want. Like the chain, the bolt. By the way, that's a carriage bolt. Um, or the hinges to the doors to Notre Dame. And that's what that is in the center. That is the most decorative rock-iron work example in that we still have around today. And there's been a big uh, resurgence of how did they do it. They had a bunch of blacksmiths actually puzzle it out. They figured out how they made it. And if you're interested in that, to see how they did it, uh, on YouTube, look up the Devil's Blacksmith. Um, so that's what it is. Now, um, that's pretty much all my presentation here. There is one thing I'd like to mention about historically. Historically, blacksmiths were, depending on where you were, were not treated well. They were a requirement for society, but they lived on the edge. Uh, and this is a lot to do with, like, the name the devil's blacksmith. The, the Christian churches generally frowned upon them because they didn't know how they were doing what they were doing and they were, they, it was akin to magic or selling your soul to the devil to get this knowledge. So you have to understand that if you're talking about a a historical uh, society like that, blacksmiths were on the edge of society. They were a necessary evil. Blacksmiths also primarily made tools. That's why they were a uh, necessary evil. Because the tailor needs scissors, shears. Farmers need uh, size and rakes and all sorts of things. Everybody re- requires the blacksmith's skill. And had that not been the case, the blacksmiths would have been burned at the stake. Um And you want to see something worse? Look at the blacksmiths in India. They were treated even worse. Um, The best was actually in Japan. They were revered. So um, now there's a lot of talk about lost technology, why we don't know how to do things that old blacksmiths did before. And that has a lot to do with, uh, with the fact that, uh, things weren't written down. Now is that because the blacksmith was illiterate? Maybe. But it's also a trade secret. Here, here's the thing. I can write down all the steps it takes to make a leaf out of a bar of steel. How many of you, when I say point A, point B, point C, think you could swing a hammer in a way that would make a leaf? Got got a couple of them. Maybe you can, but yeah, it is. That that's another thing is like when you explaining a craft in words, if you don't actually have pictures describing showing how this works, it's only useful for other blacksmiths. They know the techniques. They just need to apply them in a different place. And blacksmiths, I mean, this is a trade secret. Why do I want to give my secret of making a rose to you? Exactly. I make more money if they—yeah, everybody has to come to me. So, with that, that's pretty much my presentation. So... Who's got questions? All right, you first. All right. So the question is: Is apprenticeships do current blacksmiths today do apprenticeships? Kind of. So it's uh, it's not really an apprenticeship because in an apprenticeship the the boy would be sent to live with the blacksmith, and that usually happened around twelve to fourteen. And again, it depended upon the size of the boy. If you were too small, you had to wait till you grew up a bit to go and, um, and then in pioneer times, you would live with the blacksmith, you'd work with the blacksmith in the morning, go off to school, learn your schooling, come back, work with the blacksmith at, at night, and then go to sleep, and then on Sundays, you would go see your family. Okay, so the the question is, is how long were you an apprentice before you could leave on your own as a journeyman is what the term's called. Um, To get to a journeyman, I mean, it's like all things. It depends on the dedication of the journeyman or of the, the person. Some people do it faster. Some people do it slower. But as a general rule, five to seven years. Okay. Another question? Okay, so in at the very start, right when they figured out how to do iron working, and iron working was actually invented in a time of peace. All the little things for iron were decorative. They were... Um, jewelry and stuff like that. So it wasn't made as a as a piece of war. That came after. But in the beginnings, the blacksmith did it all. As things progressed, those jobs got uh, farmed out. So you had the smelter who made the metal. He went and dug up the ore. He created the bloom, or in later times, uh, created uh, cast iron um, with a blast furnace, that sort of stuff. So those came as things progress. More specialties broke off, um, and the blacksmith is, as a general rule, a jack of all trades for the metalworking uh you have specialties like during the middle ages you had swordsmiths they only made swords um, you had weaponsmiths who would make any other weapon you had uh they'd also make swords too uh but all of these things blacksmiths could do and they would but only in uh, more rural areas. So, so it really depends on what time frame you're talking about, All right? Now you. Uh, I was curious how long did you personally to become a person that likes to you give us an idea of what your daily routine looked like while you were learning. Uh, while I was learning, my daily routine was go out. Hit things with hammer, swear lots, throw things in the scrap bucket, start over. Um, not totally true. You have a white smith and a red smith. White smith works with the tin and and stuff, uh, and in later times aluminum. So any of the white metals. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a white smith. A red smith, and just about every kid I ask, what does a red smith do? They say they work with redstone because they play Minecraft. (laughs) (laughs) A a red smith actually works with copper. Copper, brass, and bronze. Uh, Blacksmiths are called blacksmiths because iron is a black metal. (laughs) Yeah. Oh. Uh. Ah. <laughs> Alright. Yes. Uh, the Renaissance. Right around the Renaissance. Before that, in the Middle Ages, um, superstition ran wild. And it started to get ease off around the Renaissance. So. Yes. Uh, it's just iron and its derivatives. Iron and steel, yeah, cast iron. Uh, Fun fact, iron has no carbon in it. Steel has, I think it's 0.12% carbon makes it steel, and that's mild steel. It doesn't get hard. Very durable. And... All the way up to 3% carbon, at which point it turns to cast iron. And cast iron is brittle. The more carbon you add, the more brittle things get. So. Yes? Yeah, so that's totally true. The question's about Damascus steel and uh, that the stuff we have today isn't the same as what they had back then. Uh, Who knows how Damascus Steel got its name? No, it wasn't made in Damascus. No. (laughs) The crusaders ran into it in the city of Damascus. And they were able to get a hold of it and see what it is. What the real name is, is called pattern welded steel. Now, we can't make what they made. Because we don't know how. Really, we don't. We don't know the steps. That was never written down. Um, But pattern welded steel is you take different types of steel and you basically forge weld them together and fold them over and over and over, just like wrought iron, only because you're working with steel and different grades of steel, it gives you a pattern in the steel. And the best swordsmiths at that time that made these wanted to show off their skill so they would acid etch it to bring out that pattern so you could see it. Now those swords, they weren't owned by the common people. We're talking lords, nobles, sultans, that sort of stuff. Those are the people that had that. And those were really good for the time being. However, our Damascus steel is better, but Damascus steel is actually worse than a homogenous steel bar. So, it's, uh, it's very cool and, and, and looks awesome, but as a pretty, but as a practicality, it's actually a, a lesser grade sword than you can make with just a homogenous bar. Yes. Um, okay. Yes and no. There is a lot of mysticism about true steel, and it is a lost knowledge. And the last uh, the last person that knew how to make it died without. Uh, an apprentice or sons. I think in 1930-ish era, there was one last Smith that knew how to make it and he never passed on how it was made. But metallurgically speaking, if you look at, if you basically examine it with all our computers and stuff today, it's inferior to what we've got today. Uh, the the steel that would be considered true steel back then is about as good of steel as you have in your hammers, which is, I'm going to throw out terms, you're probably never going to understand these, about 1045, which is 0.45% carbon, that's the steel that That's about the grade that you'd see the true steel at. But yes, there's a lot of mysticism around it. But if you actually stop and look at it, it's inferior. It was great at the time. Inferior for today. Yes? So, making a horseshoe, which I've only done once just to see if I could, and you got to remember, I'd never done it before, it took me about an hour and a half. But now that I know the steps, if I really wanted to, I could probably get one done in about 20 minutes. You had a question. you watch him all the time. I watch him all the <laughs> yeah. I do. He is very entertaining. Yeah. He knows his stuff. But if you're wondering how he got all the stuff he has, all those power tools and equipment and everything, you, you know those little stickers on bananas and fruit that give you the number and what it is? Uh, his dad invented how to... How those were created. He is a trust fund kid, but yeah. So, but he is very talented. He knows what he's doing, and he's very entertaining to watch. He's not the greatest person to meet. Don't meet your heroes, type thing. Yeah. Okay. If you want to know the process and how to get started and everything, uh, Purgatory Ironworks. He is, his name's Trenton Ty, and if any of you have seen Forged in Fire, season one, episode two, he's in it. He loses. But he made the prettiest weapon. But because it was so pretty, they had to, he put in some elements that weren't historical. That's why he lost. And the only reason he lost, and the judges hated it. Hated that they had to give the it to somebody else, but he also did this thing on uh, and this is very controversial. Uh, the twin towers, the whole jet fuel only burns at so hot type thing. He proved that theory wrong because yes you need to get to 2,700 degrees to melt steel. But what he does is he takes a piece of steel um, and he heats it up to about 1,800 degrees. It's not melted, totally solid, and with his pinky, he flattens it. He puts it in a hole and goes wham. It is a noodle you lose the higher the temperature, the more structural uh, integrity you lose. So if you want to see that, that one is a great one to watch to prove that the the conspiracy theorists on that part are wrong. Because you don't need to get it that hot to have all structural integrity go away. Yes, what was that? The heat's down at the bottom. Yeah. Iron is a very poor conductor of heat. Yes. That's why you can hold on to the end of a bar, it's glowing down here, and I'm holding the black end. It's not, it's just room temperature. It'll eventually work its way down, but it's very poor conductor of heat. Don't try the same thing with any copper product. <laughs> You. <coughs> mm-hmm. Application. Purely application. And, and nowadays, we've got things that... Uh, alloys of steel that use molybdenum, chromium. Who knows what chromium does to steel? Got one? <laughs> yeah. Nope. Chromium in steel... Makes it stainless. So that's how you get stainless steel is you add chromium to it. It does, but it's called stainless. Yeah, she's keeping me honest. This is my daughter in case anybody didn't know. But we've got uh, things that, uh, so when you harden a piece, you basically bring it up to temperature and temperature. As a general rule, and if you're talking about medieval or fantastical times, this is the rule you want to go with. Critical temperature is when it's non-magnetic. You touch it with a magnet, it doesn't stick. That's critical, and then you quench it. And you generally quench it in oil. And you want the oil to be hot. Too hot to touch too cold to make french fries now there are uh steels where you have lesser carbon like 1045 the, ha- the hammer steel those get quenched in water um, cuz without water oil cools it too slow water cools it fast enough to hold, to to uh harden Once you do that, you then have to temper it back. Because as soon as you harden it, it is very hard. You take a a file, you can scrape it across. The file will not dig in. It just skates across. But it's super brittle. And if you don't temper it back and take some of that hardness out, it will shatter. And you really don't want something to shatter. But you only want to temper it back a little so that you still retain the hardness so you can, if you're making a blade, you then can keep that edge as you need it. Now we have, uh, air quenching steels. You get it up to critical temperature, and these, these critical temperatures are higher. Uh, you get it up to critical temperature, you pull it out, you let it sit in the air, and it gets hard. So. Yes. Uh. For the average person, uh, if you can get uh, 4140 stainless, yeah, stainless, or 440C stainless, and the reason why people aren't very good at oiling their blades, keeping up with them. You leave them in the sheath. You forget about them. You come back a year later. You don't want rust on the blade, which will happen. Yes. Uh, what do you want to make? Swords, your best bet is uh, bronze. You can make copper swords. Um, not great. Brass swords, they break. Copper bends really easily. Uh, you can make it. I guarantee if you make a sword out of copper or, or, or brass, it'll work once. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. um, impurity in the ore? No. With exception. Um, racist? Can be. I mean, there's, the whole thing of Spanish steel is horrible, well that's because we want to sell more steel than the Spaniards. Uh, but the impurities as a general rule, depending on how this the steel was created, is negligible between uh, regions. Um, but bloomery steel, which is the same as bloomery iron, the the wrought iron, only you cook it at a higher temperature and you actually get steel. So bloomery steel, during the Crusades, all the uh, Muslims wanted the, the swords that the Crusaders had because they didn't break. They bent. That's another thing. Swords bend all the time, all the time. They weren't actually hardened for the most part. The edges could be hardened, but mostly the core was soft, and it would bend, bend in half, and after a battle, the soldiers that used swords would go back to their camp, hammer their sword back out so that they could go back out the next day. The the Muslim swords were harder but they also had a tendency to break. And the reason why they're very wide at the end is to strengthen them and prevent that from happening. And that's because they were using crucible steel. Crucible steel actually introduces impurities in. Um, now I've lost my train of thought. I, so sulfur and and uh Potassium, I think. Two things that gas off if you're doing a bloom. If you're doing crucible steel, they're stuck in and they homogenize in with the steel and it makes it brittle. But it is harder. So, uh, Okay, we've got five minutes left. We've got time for maybe a couple more questions. Okay, so tempering. If I were to make a... I'm going to put this in modern terms because it will be faster. I take a a hardened piece of steel i take it home i throw it in my oven at 400 to 450 degrees and let it sit for an hour and then as a general rule it's tempered sometimes i will do that cycle two or three times to get to make sure the temper is solid no idea <laughs> uh I know the basic functions of how blacksmiths used to make uh, rifle barrels and stuff, and I've seen what it takes to do it. I will never do it because I don't want a barrel to explode. I do not trust my skill enough in forge welding because you have to do a coil forge weld. Very, very hard to do. Uh, some blacksmiths did do it. Um, but the ones that did either killed a lot of their own soldiers or were really good at forge welding. So, yeah. Yep. Uh, power hammers in, in that actually go way, way back uh, to the Bronze Age. Yeah, water power and it just went up and down at the same speed, same uh hitting force as well. So yeah, it was uh, it's something that uh it's been around for a long time. Most blacksmiths use a striker cuz they're not next to a water source, and a striker is a power hammer. I have a little hammer, I hit where I want you to hit, and then you come in with a two-handed sledge and hit. So But a power hammer takes the striker out. That's all it does. But modern power hammers, you can actually control how much force you're hitting with. So, we got two minutes, so one more question. Uh, their home would be attached to it, and in the pioneer era, the blacksmith was pretty much the center of town. He was right next to the Wayne's right. Uh, who knows what a Wayne's right is? No. That's a wheelwright. Wayne's right makes the wagon. So they'd be next to the Wayne's right, which is next to the wheelwright, which is next to the carpenter. So all of them revolved around the blacksmith because if they needed a tool, they ran right over to the blacksmith. Alright, so that's pretty much it. Like I said, I will be just sitting out here for the next hour because I have nothing better to do. So if anybody wants to come talk to me...